When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Money doesn't move in that sense of motion. The Fed credits an account and the Fed debits an account. One number goes up because they entered a higher number and the other number goes down because they entered a lower number. There's no actual connection, it's not water. And it's like watching your TV screen. There's nothing moving on your TV screen. If you get up close, all you have is dots going on and off. So that becomes hard to reconcile with what you already know once you hear that, you can't disagree with it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Next Big Trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. Enjoy the show. This week, I'm very excited to be speaking to Warren Mosler. I think the best way to describe Mr. Mosler's bio is extensive and varied. Uh, Wikipedia describes him as an American hedge fund manager and entrepreneur. He's a co-founder of the Center for Full Employment and Price Stability at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a founder of Mosler Automotive. But I think uh, Mr. Mosler is well known is most well known for his writings on modern monetary theory. It's worth noting that we're not going to discuss a specific trade this week. Uh, instead, I'm hoping that we can discuss current macro events through an MMT frame, because it seems to me that you come up with radically different economic prognoses. Um, hi, Warren. How's it going? Hello. Very good. Thank you. Good to be here. Excellent. So I got a stupid story to tell you, although my wife will tell you that most of my stories are stupid stories. So it's kind of redundant. But uh, back in 2003, I think it was 2003, I was working for Medley Advisors. Uh, I don't know how to describe Medley other than we used to speak to central bankers or treasury officials. And then we take what they told us back to hedge funds or asset managers. And we charge the hedge funds and asset managers a fee for this. So think of it as an information arbitrage before it became illegal. Anywho, uh, one day there was this conference call and some of my colleagues asked me to hop on it. It's a guy called Mosler and we were probably pitching you on taking the service. And they got me to listen in because I was the closest thing the firm had to an economist. Like for the avoidance of doubt, I'm not an economist, but I have done that job in the past. And, you know, I've, I've, I had worked at the Bank of England for four years and, and I can do a pretty good impression of an economist in a pinch Ceteris Paribus, Mutatus Mutandus, and all that. So I'm there listening on the phone to you explaining what turned out to be modern monetary theory, and I'm thinking to myself, hang on a minute, this is definitely not the conventional analysis of how markets and rates are meant to work, but I really can't put my finger on where he's wrong. Is this how everyone reacts when you first run them through your ideas? Uh, yes, you know, they make it makes sense logically, perhaps, but they can't reconcile it with what they thought they already knew. And that's where most of the questions come up, just trying to reconcile it with what's already out there. Yeah, I, I had trouble for ages. But if you think about something on and off for about 10 years, you eventually, you know, eventually it becomes less strange, less weird. And in fact, the other, other way of thinking about things becomes weirder and stranger. Yeah, you know, I'll say, look, I'll say something like money doesn't move in that sense of motion. It, the Fed credits an account and the Fed debits an account. One number goes up because they 
entered a higher number and the other number goes down because they entered a lower number. There's no actual connection. It's not water. And it's like watching your TV screen. There's nothing moving on your TV screen. If you get up close, all you have is dots going on and off. And uh, so that becomes hard to reconcile with what you already know once once you hear that. You can't disagree with it, but at the same time, you know, what goes through your head is, well, what does this mean now for everything else I thought I knew, right? That seems to me like, would you you describe that as the most succinct expression of MMT you can come up with? Well, you know, that's actually mainstream. So uh, most of what I say is mainstream, oddly enough. The, The MMT parts are the understanding that the currency itself is a public monopoly. Okay, and and the money story begins with uh, coercive taxation. The government wants to provision itself with soldiers and a legal system and public health system and education. How do you get people out of the private sector into the public sector? Well, the way we do it is you levy a coercive tax, and I'll say a property tax for this example because all the other taxes are co- complex and confused, so we'll keep it simple. You put a tax on everybody's house, payable in a tax credit that you determine, such as the U.S. dollars, the thing you need to pay this tax. Okay. And, and, and it's coercive. If you don't pay, there's severe penalties. You're going to lose your house. And what you've done now is create, you've monetized the economy. You created sellers of the real goods and services you want to provision a government who are looking for those dollars, the tax credits in exchange. Okay. Now, now there are, and that's what we call unemployment. So in the first instance, uh, we're setting up a simple monopoly. The government demands dollars that nobody has for payment of taxes. A dollar, the government's a single supplier of the dollars that can be used to pay taxes. Okay, and people say government doesn't supply all the money. I didn't say that. It's the dollars that can be used to pay taxes come only from the government. And so now the government can hire soldiers and uh, public health workers and whatever else it wants for its otherwise worthless dollars because the economy needs them to pay the tax. So the sequence is government wants to provision itself, tax liability, people are become unemployed, they're looking for paid work, the government hires them, they get paid, and then the government gets its taxes paid. It gets its money back, so to speak, and uh, which is why it's called tax revenue. It's returned to the government. The word revenue means returned. And you file your tax return. And you render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Yes. You know, the government spends, the government spends first. Okay. And it can only spend first because of the tax liability. The tax is a tax driven currency. The government spends first and that adds the funds to the system that are then used to pay taxes and to buy government securities. If their government wants to sell securities. Now you're at the Bank of England for four years. So you recognize the sequence and, and the job of the, uh, monetary operations staff is to do what they call offset operating factors, make sure because, you know, they ha- you can't do as a way they say it is you can't do a reserve drain without a prior reserve ad. The government has to spend first by government through its agents. The main agent is the Federal Reserve. So the Fed has to do a reserve ad before they can conduct a reserve drain, before taxes can be paid or before bonds can be purchased. And that's that's the uh, essence. That's a, It's a monopoly. And the interesting thing about a monopoly is that when you take microeconomics, it's the first thing you learn. It only takes about 20 minutes. <laughs> it's the easy one. Then you go on to oligopoly, it takes a couple of days. Then you go on to competition, it takes the rest of your life with asymptotes and all that stuff. The good news is the currency is the easy one, the monopoly. 
the economy needs the government's money to pay the tax. Monopolists are price setter. They set the terms of exchange. It's not a market situation. The, the idea that the currency is a monopoly, coercive taxation, obviates any notion of neutrality of money, of free markets. It, it, they can't exist, you know, in, a, in this environment. It's a, it's an interference, and it's an interference that's been written about by mainstream economists forever. But usually, it's the form of a. Uh, company having a monopoly or a labor union you know, interfering with markets. In this case, the currency itself is a public monopoly. The whole essence of the monetary system is monopoly, not competition. So I'm sure people are going to be upset because you've, you've given a stylized model of something. Yes. And everyone gets upset with stylized models. Sorry, everyone who's not an economist. Economists but I have a formal only, model of it on my website. Right. But even <laughs> economists only work with stylized models. Everything yeah. they ever do is a stylized model. Yeah. So I have no problem with it. And I recognize in the, the system you just laid out that there are essential, uh, critical differences with the original framing of this question. Mm -hmm. um, and the monopoly thing gives you the coercion, gives you the ability to set terms of trade. And of course, this is politically problematic. I mean, like one of the things that I get most, I mean, most in, ex, intrigued by about MNT is the incredible amount of heat it generates per unit light. Yes. <laughs> There, there are there are two resolutions in front of Congress condemning me MMT as being subversive. <laughs> it's it's wrong thing. Yeah. You're, you're guilty of wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. So why is it that MMT generates that much hostility? Why, why are we talking about magic money trees? Why do people coin these emotive terms? I actually like that one. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean. It's, it's always been that way. Back when I was uh, running my funds for 15 years, you know, I, we didn't, I'll just, it's, I'm not trying to sell my fund or anything. It's been long gone. It ended at the end of 97. But, you know, we didn't, I didn't have a losing trade in 15 years and no one ever liked any of my trades, right? In year 14, I think, okay, we can buy this and sell that. It's converging. But now I don't think it's going to work. So I, I don't know. Uh, I built a four-hulled boat, a long wheelbase boat, hulls out in front, hulls in the backs. To, as a ferry runs back and forth here between St. Croix and St. Thomas so that people don't get seasick. It eliminates the pitching and rolling motions of a normal boat. And for two years, the company wouldn't build it because they didn't think it would work. And it's just, there's no moving parts. It's just a boat for us. And then the Coast Guard took forever to work through it to make sure that, it, you know, whatever it was. And, uh, and to the day it went in the water, it was, uh, people were suspecting it just wasn't going to work. And uh, I don't know what to tell you. It's just way, everything I've done has been like that. I got a working hypothesis about why you encounter like encounter so much hostility. Number one is there's a you know not your turf. There's a, you know there's a high priesthood yeah. of people who determine political economy. And they lay down what is true and what is false. And anyone else who pops up and says, actually, that doesn't make any sense. What are you damn well talking about? You're just offending them. And these people are important. So that's one thing. The other thing is you're talking about the most important thing in the world. Who gets which resources and why? Yeah. And if you say something like, oh, no, there's an, that resource allocation, there's a touch of arbitrariness about it. Yes. Uh, you're touching on something very, very delicate, very, very politically sensitive. People have to slap you down because the notion that, you know, Mr. Diamond, 
a lot of that money you made, that might have been just because the Fed gave it to you. <laughs> just get, that's going to upset a lot of people. Right? That's not talent. Yeah. That's a gift. Yeah. Maybe that gift should have been thought through a bit better. Is there a criticism? What's your favorite criticism or pertinent criticism of MMT? Well, it's, it's probably the latest one, which I just popped up and said that, um, you know, I've been saying that the, the rate hikes are actually adding income to the economy, which everybody agrees to. And so it's adding to aggregate demand. It's, and it's making the economy stronger. It's making unemployment lower. And it's, uh, you know, in the most regressive way possible. So I don't support it, but it's still doing it. And uh, it's, so it's supporting inflation. It's, it's, the, it's the wrong direction. I compare it to the uh, carpenter with a piece of wood. It says, no matter how much I cut off, it's still too short. So every time the Fed raises rates, inflation forecasts go up, so they raise rates some more. Okay, so some, somebody said, well, this will be a good test of MMT to see if this plays out the way Warren Mosler is saying it plays out. Okay, it's not MMT. This is every mainstream economist for the last three or four decades that I personally can remember saying that warning about the deficit and warning that if you let it get too high and the interest compounds and all those interest payments, you're going to need to raise taxes or else you're going to have inflation or insolvency or some problem from all those interest payments. And it's like, okay, you know, I agree that the interest payments get high and debt to GDP gets high enough. Those massive interest payments, they're going to add to inflation. Okay, I agree. Well, now it's happened. Our debt to GDP has gone from 50 or 60% up to 120%. And even at 50 or 60, the data was telling me it was probably already high, more than high enough to be adding to inflation. But, you know, it's just me. Now, 120%, to me, it's perfectly obvious from the data that it's just adding to inflation. And they're arguing, no, you know, raising rates is not inflationary. And, well, we didn't mean that when we said it that way. We were talking about, and they start going into all these convoluted stuff, but it becomes a test of MMT to see if the what they've been saying for 30 or 40 years comes to fruition. It's like, okay, you know, so everything, um, the interesting thing is how many things get, you know, I get blamed for, <laughs> okay? You know, tur Turkey, Venezuela, you know, you, you know, that's MMT, you know, look, look what MMT did to Turkey. Look what MMT did to Venezuela. Look what... The Cato Institute came out with something saying that the inflation is because of MMT. Biden and his associates and the AOC, they're looking to MMT, this radical new theory. And look what they've done. Look what MMT has done. Okay. First of all, they've soundly rejected any attempt for me to even speak to them. And, and the whole thing, they categorically reject. Well, I, I, I got to tell you, I think that's a smart move on their part, right? This is going to be an ugly thing. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Well, you know, Chairman Powell categorically rejected it. Now here, Cato is saying, in order to gain seats in the election, I guess, that uh, the Fed adopted MMT, and that's why we have the inflation. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a convenient uh, thing to, to blame things on, right? Well, you know, you've got a choice between MMT or critical race theory. Yeah. So in the circumstances, <laughs> I, I would pick, I would go with MMT as well. Um, so uh, you kind of, you, you kind of scooped me on going there. I was, yeah. I was, I was hoping to touch on that thing in a second. But okay. my favorite criticism of MMT, my, the most pertinent is the one where it says, well, it's all true, but we all knew that before anyway. Yeah. Right. There's nothing new there. Oh, yeah, that's the, yeah, that the other thing. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I like that one a lot because I think it's actually correct. Yeah, I use historical examples to point these things out of, you know, Adam Smith said the prince, when he taxes and spends in his currency, can determine the value. I mean, this, yeah, it's all out there. It's not like no one ever said this. Uh, Mitchell Innes, the lawyer, wrote all about it in 1900. Uh, right. Again, you know, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. This is this is old stuff. In fact, up until a couple of hundred years ago, it was common knowledge. It's true. People underestimate Jesus as both an economist and a rabbi. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's just curious in that respect. So yeah. that was my favorite. But uh, before we move on to the guts of this discussion, which you've already you've, you've already led with, so shame on me. I got I'm late. I wanted to touch on. Uh, you know, did you use MMT a lot when you traded? Was this was this something that you you leaned on? Uh, I it, it probably kept me from losing trades more than it got me into winning trades. So I'd see something like Japan, and everybody's saying, "Oh, Japan debt to GDP is two hundred percent. You need to get short this." And I'm going, "No, <laughs> so it doesn't work that way. It's just a reserve drain. Get over it. There is no problem here." And so I didn't actually yeah. do anything. Now there were times when. Um, I would buy credit default swaps on, uh, or sell credit default swaps, like on the UK when they thought they were going to default, like up to 80 or 90 basis points or 120 or something. And that, that was based on understanding that. But is that MMT actually? I, I guess so. And it started off, it, it came out of the Italian trade, which you probably were familiar with. That was in- uh, Which one of them? The convergence one yeah, or yeah, the- 1992 or three. Just before I wrote soft okay. currency yeah, economics, yeah. I I, uh, I had that trade on. I made good money. Oh, you was, did, uh, and and you know what? I I made money uh, against my better instincts because I'm pretty stupid, but I'm not stupid enough to continually lose money because I had an idea and it wasn't working. So there just came a point where I said, I don't I don't get it. It's going up. I'm going to try buying it. See how that works. <laughs> right, right. And that worked a lot better. Yeah. So uh, so what happened is in the early '90s, everybody thought Italy was going to default. And if you could come up with a reason they weren't going to default, then you could make a fair amount of money, but you had to be, it was pretty high risk. And um, it was Lira, it was their own currency. And so I was thinking, um, okay, like how many countries with their own currency ever defaulted? And, and I checked with S&P and there were half a dozen instances, but they were all pretty easily explained. Like Japan in 1943 didn't pay yen to the United States. It's like, okay. <laughs> they didn't default because they couldn't make the payment. They didn't want to make the payment. And some of the Latin American bonds technically defaulted because the inflation was so high that the holder of the bond never bothered to cash it in because it wasn't worth anything. It's worth you know less than a penny for 117 billion pesos or whatever. So those were those kinds of defaults. So there, there never was one. So, that, so then I started asking around, well, why don't countries default? And they say, well, it's because they can always print the money. But when you looked at all these examples, no one ever did print the money and they still did default. So there's something else going on. And uh, I was talking to Tom Schulke, who was my research assistant. I don't know if you uh, had a research, I don't know if you knew him. And it just dawned on me. I said, Tom, you know, if, if I buy securities uh, from the Fed or if we buy them from the Treasury, it doesn't make any difference to us. The money goes to the same place, they debit or account it. Uh, it was a bank in New York at the time. And um, we get a credit in our securities account for the treasuries. And whether it came from the Federal Treasury, it's the same thing. I said, so if, you know, yet one is supposed to be funding the government and the other is supposed to be supporting rates, uh, you know, if they weren't at the Fed's target. And so um, 
you know, it, it's, it can't be both. It's got to be one or the other. It's obviously interest rate yeah. support. The whole thing, sale of treasury securities is a reserve drain, whether the Fed selling them or the treasury selling them. So the whole trillion in debt or whatever it was back then, it's just a big glorified reserve drain. They're just selling those because if they don't sell them, there's excess reserves, the funds rate would go to zero. Either the Fed or the treasury has to sell them to support their policy rate. It's got nothing to do with funding the treasury. They're just debiting and crediting yeah. accounts, okay? And Because uh, it's effectively a closed system. Yeah. The system is closed. This money has to go somewhere. And, and, and so that was the, that is why they don't default, because they're actually spending first. You get a credit from the Fed to your account, and then you debit the account and credit the securities account. Uh, so the government has to spend first, and then you can pay your taxes or you can buy the bonds. And then... If you noticed every month when the treasury bonds settled, the Fed would be in doing repos to spend the money so that the private sector had, the banking system had the money to buy the bonds. And so that was, that was the, when the lights came on about fundamentally why governments don't default with their own currency. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems to me they, they, they don't have to. They could choose to keep money. If you do that, it's like a game of musical cheers where you take away one of the kids' cheers. Some kid's going to be in trouble. Well, it's, it's even less than that because you've got a dollar balance in a securities account called a treasury security. That's just a time deposit at the Fed for all practical purposes. Mm -hmm. And when it matures, they debit the securities account and credit your reserve account at the same Fed, right? Right. Now, what you're saying is they don't have to do that if they don't want to, but it's not like operationally restricted in any way. They just it's, it's in the computer to do it. You'd have to reprogram the computer not to do it. It's not like sure. it doesn't drain a resource or do anything. It's like if you have a savings account at Bank America and it matures, it, it shows up in your checking account. That's not like some kind of like, right. you know, anything of any particular interest. And so, uh, but the, and that's what happens when bonds mature. They just debit the securities account, credit the reserve account. No taxpayers, no grandchildren in a room. No, it's got nothing to do with it. And if you look at look at the central bank, the whoever's like at the Internal Revenue or whoever's collecting the taxes, you know, whoever's debiting your account as tax payment, doesn't even have the phone number or the email of the guy who's spending and crediting the account. There's like no connection inside the government between the guy taxing and the guy spending. So obviously it's not consequential whether there's a difference between those two in terms of monetary operations. Now, politically, there's a huge difference, but for monetary operations, it doesn't matter at all. And so that's what I came up with back then. And so then, okay, now I know why Italy can make any payment they want. Now I can buy CCTs or whatever and uh, BTPs at 200 over lira funding costs. <laughs> you know, it's a simple trade. You, you buy them at 12 and fund them at 10. But you got to make sure the people at the at the bank of Italy know which buttons to push, because in Russia in 1998 we saw what happened. They just got up and walked out. They didn't even shut the lights off. They didn't make any payments for three months. Yeah, so that that is an interesting counter example. So it's one of the few few cases where a central bank chose not to pay obligations in its own yeah. currency. Yeah. Now, be, a few months before that, I left the firm at the end of '97 because I had a disagreement with the. Uh, portfolio manager who was doing our Russia account. And uh, I, I said, look, we need to go over there and talk to them to make sure that they know which buttons to push when they run out of foreign exchange reserves so that, you know, they don't just all get up and walk out. And he says, oh, we don't want to do that. The spreads will go away. And we won't be able to put more of this trade on. And I said, no, I can't. <laughs> this, is, this is not the right thing to be doing here from an investor point of view or anything. And so I talked to my other partners, see if they'd mind if I just took 
you know, turned it over to them. And they were more than happy to take over managing of the funds. So that was my excuse to nice that trade. was my excuse to get out. Now I you know I, I left a lot of money on the table, but I got to do other things. And uh and, and that's what happened in Russia. But in Italy, when, when I was running the fund, it, we didn't make that mistake. So I talked to our friends at uh, Harvard Management. Did you know Dave Middleman there or, uh, and Maurice, Maurice Samuels? I didn't know him. I knew knew of him, but yes. He, he was great. So they, he had the Harvard business card. So they set up meetings with the Luigi Spaventa Treasury Department at the Bank of Italy and uh, the finance ministry. And we went out there and talked to him. And... Uh, you know, I said, I'm just going to ask you a question. It's rhetorical. Don't answer. But why are you selling these BTPs and CCTs? Is it to uh, get Lira to fund the expenditures? Or is it because if you spend the money by crediting your member bank accounts and you don't sell them, then your interbank rate is going to drop to zero and you wanted it 12% or whatever it was at the time. And he, he got really quiet and he looked at me and he goes, uh, no, the rate won't drop to zero. It'll only drop to a half a percent because we pay a support rate. And I said, I'm thinking, great. <laughs> we finally got somebody in government who I'd never run into anywhere who actually understood monetary operations. And then, and then he, a couple of seconds later, he jumps up and immediately goes into this rage against the IMF for forcing pro-cyclical activity to bring the deficit down because he realized it was a bunch of nonsense. And it was all doom and gloom over in Italy there. And all of a sudden, it's party time. And he starts inviting in people from the other offices. And they got this big cappuccino machine and they're making us coffee. And we, you know, we're supposed to be there 20 minutes. Two hours later, we have to sneak out for our next meeting. And a week later, uh, the word came out from the ministry, no extraordinary measures will be taken. All payments will be made. So they were all money good. And then we put on our positions and we, we were the largest holders of Italian bonds outside of Italy, I think we were told. Probably between us and our clients, $20 billion worth back when that was a fair amount of money. And, it, you know, we had some good years. This, yeah, if, you know, it's a nice carry trade. It was always a nice carry trade. And of course, some of those bonds used to go super special as well. You couldn't couldn't borrow <laughs> them. So suddenly you're funding yourself at negative rates. <laughs> I was happy to fund at 10 and earn 12. <laughs> but you're right. The rates did come down. So that was the beginning of what beca later became MMT. Because then I wrote up the whole thing. And back then we had Ross Perot running for president on this deficit thing. And he's actually the reason that Clinton won the election is because he ran as a third party and took 15% of the vote or whatever. It was all conservative votes that would have gone to the Republican to, uh, yeah, you know, and, uh, and it was all on this misconception about risks of deficit spending. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I never know what people are really thinking. People say stuff. That doesn't mean they really believe it. I suspect Ross, Mr. Perot, did believe that the deficit was a serious problem because it's such a common contention. Yeah. But uh, I wouldn't be a hundred percent convinced that you know Mr. Bush, for example, really believed, or Mr. Cheney believed the deficit mattered. His popular his popularity faded when he said the Viet Cong were stalking, uh, lurking outside at his daughter's wedding <laughs> in Texas. <laughs> After that, he started losing yeah. credibility. <laughs> but I knew Steve. See, Steve Vlasnik was his his man manager. He still, and he was a good friend of mine. They were they were clients. They were large clients of ours. 
And, right. and he wouldn't let me talk to Perot. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's that's and, a smile. And he idea. ran his whole portfolio well. based on what I was saying. He was one of the more successful managers, you know, in the country at the time. Yeah, what what can I say? So the, the, what I wanted to run past, you know, uh, people, the, the people listening to this podcast, is this bigger picture uh, divergence between conclusions you'd reach with MMT and conclusions you'd reach in, I don't even know how to describe it. What, should I call it the conventional frame, the central bank frame? Yeah. Or, you know, conventional economic wisdom, yeah. whatever you want yeah. to say. Yeah. So I was looking at, uh, I, I, I noticed this maybe a couple of weeks ago when I was uh, looking at your uh, website. Um, and a better example is one of the tweets you had from a few days back, yeah. uh, where you say, you haven't seen crazy until markets figure out that the Fed has it backwards and rate hikes instead support aggregate demand and prices. What did you mean? So it's universally accepted that rate hikes are there to fight inflation and people will argue over the channels, but there, it's through somehow slows the economy down, somehow creates unemployment or slows down employment, somehow reduces aggregate demand, somehow uh, discourages investment, maybe pushes uh, purchasing decisions forward or something like that. And it's a generally, a deflationary bias. And if the Fed doesn't act, they're going to lose their credibility. And the whole monetary system is based on credibility. There's it's fiat money. There's nothing behind it. If, if people ever lose faith in it, then the whole thing goes to heck and you turn into Venezuela or something like that. So you can't get behind the curve. Now, I, I can only give you these loose, what you call stylized discussions, because that's all there are. <laughs> it's not, there's nothing quantified about any of it. And nor is it specifically tied to monetary operations in in any way. But that's that's the story. What do you think? Is that a fair assessment of the story? Uh, you know, I think they have a micro basis for it, and the micro basis is uh, the firm level higher rates, slow investment, and investments a component of aggregate demand, and maybe it retards a little bit of consumption as well because you know at the margin you've got a higher rate, so maybe you, you know your twenty six percent credit card payment is now twenty seven, yeah. <laughs> so that's why you don't you don't buy that sofa after all, yeah. and so th that's kind of what's in their head. Yeah, it's kind of a fallacy of composition, right? Because their own studies over the last several years, they've had more than one show that investment's not a function of rates. And, and they've showed that inflation is not a function of expectations in several of their re own research. They have 400 PhDs doing this stuff. And it's been at least 20 years since I saw any central bank paper come out and show that inflation was a function of rates. And that paper was like, uh, well, if you increase rates by 1%, inflation will come down by a tenth with a two to four year lag. It's like, okay, <laughs> that's the best you can do. And two, two to four year lag, <laughs> one tenth. <laughs> it's, a, it's a potential problem. But even that hasn't come out. Even those papers stopped coming out 20 years ago. So we have this conventional wisdom that we've jack, jacked up rates to what looks like it's going to be about four and a half percent. Yeah, um, we haven't got there yet, but we're we're heading there, and the ED curve is convinced. Yeah. Um, and then it's going to cause a big recession. Mm -hmm. It's going to cause a big recession, and you can see it, it's that. stronger. By the way, than convinced. That's what they're discounting. That's where buyers and sellers are. Those are the indifference levels. That's real trade. That's real trades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 
And uh, so we have maybe a, a 50 to 100 basis point rate cut priced in the ED curve over the next two years because we get to 4.5%, the economy breaks and everything collapses. And better still, if you wanted to see a, 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 a cute, you know, a trade that would attract my attention anyway, it's break-evens. Yeah. Break-evens, uh, two-year break-evens are now like two and a, 2.2, 2.1, something like that. So inflation is currently 8, 8%, 8.5%. It's going to drop in two years to 2%. That seems to me to involve having zero second round effects. And what do I mean by second round effects? I mean, you've just taken a 10% hit on your real income on what you can buy with the, the money you get from your wages. But instead of saying, I'd like a 10% pay rise, you, you, you quietly accept that you shouldn't get a pay rise because, you know, the economy's tough out there. And you will not be striking. You will not be pushing for that pay rise. You will, you will say monetary conditions are way too tight. Uh, it's not going to happen. So for me, that seems counterintuitive. That kind of sharp drop in inflation, it, it would only happen if we had something pressing down, making the economy demand deficient. Um, and that, I think, it has to be fiscal policy. It can't be done by jacking up rates. What have I gotten wrong? Well, I think we're more dependent on oil prices than you're talking about. I think if oil stays here at about 80-ish, we've had two CPI prints pretty much flat. I think that kind of continues and, and, and it will come down if, if that's the case. Sure. Which I don't, I don't think it is. But I, I think that, if, you know, in commodities, we've seen lumber now down uh, from 1,500 to under 500, low 400s now. So it's almost back to where it was before. We've seen a lot of this stuff back to pre-COVID levels now. Sure. And the, the wage increases aren't, haven't been a lot higher than they would have been in any case. Maybe they've gone from three to four or something like that, but they're not like they haven't gone from three to ten, and you know. So we haven't we haven't we haven't had those second round effects. Yeah, and and, and now can we can things happen where we get them? Certainly, but right now we're not. And based on the idea that a four percent rate or four and a half percent rate is going to slow down investment, it's going to slow down housing, then it's a plausible scenario, and that's why the markets are discounting it. But if you look at the idea that you know, what's been lost is that debt to GDP since the last cycle has gone from, you know, 55, 60% to 115, 120%. And so now a 1% increase in rates, um, if you look at, you know, ultimately effectively present value or whatever is based on, uh, it is over a 1% increase in GDP, you know, uh, spent a 1% of GDP increase in deficit spending on interest, where before it might have been a half a percent. So that's doubled. And so if we've gone from zero to, let's say, 4%, we've had, you know, the deficit now, including interest expense, is going to be 4% plus whatever the primary deficit is, which is probably another three or four. So we'll be looking at total deficit to GDP of 8% or more. And that may be higher. I mean, I don't, I don't know. The CBO projections show it going up, but I, I don't. I don't know how good they are. Now, I'm thinking that that would work slowly over time because you, you, what you'll do is you'll roll off the old debt slowly. As the old debt rolls yeah. off, the coupons will jump and then the yeah. amount of money... So you can look at the four-year duration, but don't forget, the Fed has bought a lot of those securities. So what happens is the Fed's profits drop because it's paying interest on reserves and the actual payments to the economy go up based on the short, the overnight rate. It's zero-duration stuff. A lot of zero duration stuff. I also don't think yeah. that counts the tips, which isn't as large. I think there's three or four hundred billion of them. 
And I don't know, you know, 8% starts turning into a lot of money, but, uh, you know, that, that adds a little bit. So I just, I just want to toss that in. But the, so the number, the effective duration is a lot less than the treasury's stated duration because of the Fed converted all those bonds to zero duration, notes and bonds to bills to zero duration. Yeah. So, uh, and even if, if you've got something that's going to mature in six months and you're a pension fund or anything else, your, your policies are based on the reinvestment rate, which is based on the euro dollar curve. So it's already in there just because it, it's not like it's a cash basis economy on this stuff. It's all accrual for all practical purposes, you know, at the macro level. And so at the macro level, it's, we're accruing those high rates now. And, uh, yes, there's some lag because of duration. And that's understood, but hey, it's not as large as you think. And it's not, it's not zero. Okay. So, but we're looking at close to a trillion of, by the end of the year, we'll be paying interest at something like a trillion dollar annual rate where, you know, well, maybe eight or 900 billion more than a year ago. <laughs> you know, we're talking about a lot of money. And so, um, now I'm sorry, it's not quite that much because there was, because well, it might be with the interest on reserves. I, I don't know the exact number, but it's somewhere in that magnitude. And, and that's a big add to, to the deficit. Now, the question is, does when you deficit spending on interest, does that count? <laughs> so when they look at the IMF report for Argentina, the primary deficit's 2%. And that's all they look at. You got to bring that down to zero. Well, what, what's the total deficit including interest? Well, I don't know. Peso interest. Well, that doesn't count. Okay. Well, if you look at it, it's another, you know, 8% of GDP headed towards 10. And their debts to GDP is only 40, but their rates are 90%. So it's like a lot of money. And, uh, and it's all getting paid to people whose marginal propensity to save is high. They don't spend it, but they don't keep pesos either. Their marginal propensity to buy dollars is, you know, close to 100%. Yeah. So here they are feeding the foreign exchange market with peso interest indirectly. They pay out the interest. That money goes to the FX markets of like 10% of GDP and climbing. And they're wondering why the exchange rate goes down continuously, you know, causes imported prices to go up, which they measure as CPI and inflation, which causes them to raise rates all that all the more because they've agreed with the IMF to keep a positive real rate. So as inflation gets to 80, they'll pay 90. <laughs> I, I, I was down there in this year earlier talking to them. I was at the central bank and rates were, I don't know, 40 or 50. And they were keeping a real rate. And, uh, you know, they agreed with everything I said. The first thing they said is, we've been reading your blogs just like you. <laughs> so you don't have to start from the beginning. That's fantastic. But they said, but they said we just can't do this. You know, we can't take the chance that by cutting rates to reduce the deficit, uh, the currency will do better because, you know, better to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally, as Keynes said. It was very true. And so they, they, they are sticking by the IMF thing. So it was, you know, 40% inflation with 50% rates. So they, that, so inflation goes to 50 and rates go to 60 and inflation goes to 60. So rates go to 70. They're up to 90 now and they're still doing this. That's only six months later. So uh, the U.S. is on that same path, but starting at a much lower level. But everybody started somewhere, right? <laughs> and so we're raising rates to four. And if that's going to cause inflation to go higher than otherwise, if the Fed's forecast is 1.8, and it goes to 2.5 or 2.6. Now they have to go to five or six, you know, and try and keep a real rate, same as everybody else who follows the IMF does and who follows mainstream does. And 
it's just an upward spiral. And it's like an unvirtuous cycle to the, and it's, it's highly regressive because all these interest payments, they're like basic income for people who already have money in proportion to how much you have. Now, there are a lot of people who favor basic income, and I've never heard any of them say only to people who already have money in proportion to how much they have. So it's kind of like odd that that's the policy of a democratic government is <laughs> to support people with money in proportion to how much they have to fight inflation. It's like, this is, this is I, madness. I don't think it's odd at all. I think all the people that count yeah. are the ones who have large balances to invest in government securities. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. So it's, who, it's, it's who would have thought? So who, would, who would have thought? <laughs> so, but yes, it is curious they've managed to persuade everybody else to go along with them on this one. But, it's, but if it's not fighting inflation like I fear, which like the data is telling me, like every mainstream economist said it would, 15 or 20 years ago when the debt to GDP was only 50. Oh, if it goes up to 120, then we're going to have this problem where all this interest is going to be inflationary because it overwhelms any differences in propensities to consume that otherwise might be deflationary. Now, the higher the debt to GDP, the more these interest payments become dominant. Now, now they're not even they're in total denial that they ever even thought that. It's all written down. It's all on, on the internet. <laughs> Well, you know, the, this is why. So, the, the one of the key aspects of this, yeah. I think that the, the, you talked about people saying, if if your if MMT is right, yeah. <laughs> then your predictions will be will will have a curious amount more inflation, a stronger economy. Well, let me just qualify again. This is not even MMT. This is every mainstream economist up until six months ago, <laughs> just suddenly turned to turned to switch. <laughs> <laughs> People are funny in being selective about yes. what parts of MMT but then it become, will ex- what, internalize. What they used to think and no longer think becomes MMT. Okay, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so, but one of the things that's made me think is the phrase I've got to be on the lookout for yeah. is the phrase surprising resilience. Yeah, yeah. The more I see economic data... Uh, get commentary, which is surprising resilience in housing sales, or surprising resilience in consumer confidence, or uh, how about the jobless jobless claims? Surprising resilience in jobless claims, and <laughs> I will think to myself, hmm, maybe Mister Mosler is right, and that my friends in various central banks are not as right as perhaps they think they are. But then, what? Then what um, happens? How does this end? This is gets. That's why I say you haven't seen crazy. To if this is right, this is like. Well, exactly, because we are completely. Inc- so, how how wrong are our break evens? As you pointed out, and it, you know, even if energy didn't go down, then CPI would come off anyway because it it didn't go up. Um, it dropped out. Uh, At least headline. It, it, yeah. ha- it has. It has gone down to some degree, although me personally, I'm kind of uh, like, this is how you lose money in trading where you have like a core view and you stick to it regardless of what you see. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> um, but I, I, I look at the world and I think, you know, we're short of all that gas that was traveling from Russia to Western Europe. Yeah. That's not going to arrive in Western Europe. So they're going to need something to fill that gap. And that something is oil, coal and everything else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. If you look at the 
like you said, the employment numbers and housing all of a sudden, the resilience coming in and uh, uh, globally now, debt to GDP is everywhere. It's just as high as the U.S. and they're all raising rates globally. So we're supporting nominal demand everywhere, which is, you know, adding to budget deficits and adding to these price pressures, right? And in, in, yeah. in, a, in a world that's already run out of excess capacity in oil, mm-hmm. where the underinvestment is legendary, it just isn't happening. And it's not going to happen because it's politically incorrect to, in, you know, invest in oil, new capacity for fossil fuels or something. You're just, you know, it's just not going to happen. And so uh, that's, you know, that's what we're walking into now. So we've got a Fed that has it backwards. If oil prices start going up and headline CPI starts going up, they're just going to be raising rates more, which is going to cause more upward pressure from nominal demand, which means higher rates. And we're in this spiral. And uh, so where does it end? Well, hopefully I'm wrong. And debt to GDP is not high enough for the interest effect to be adding to demand, which is po- it's possible. Okay. At 30% debt to GDP, I'd say no. At 50 and 60, I was saying it looks like it. At 120, I'm pretty sure, but, you know, I'm... So we've also got QT happening simultaneously. Is that not offsetting some of the pressure? That That's just placebo stuff. That doesn't do anything. You know, whether the dollars are in a securities accounts or the Federal Reserve accounts doesn't matter. They moved them from uh, at-market prices from reserve accounts to secure from securities accounts to reserve accounts. Now they're going to move them back from to the other. It's like Bank America, if they're changing their composition or JP Morgan between savings accounts and checking accounts, it has no macro effects. That's the, the Fed's just, a, for that purpose, the Fed's just a bank like any other bank. It doesn't mean a thing. So I would argue, and I'm probably wrong in this, it wouldn't be the first time I'm wrong, right? Let's face facts. Um, I would argue that there is a banking supervision framework to consider as well. And because of the banking supervision framework, we do have arbitrary uh, differences. The Fed's balance sheet is not supervised. They don't have to meet SLRs. They don't have to meet any of those uh, Basel uh, requirements. The commercial bank's balance sheets are supervised. So in that sense, it it may tighten monetary conditions through that effect. Well, it's going to take these short-term assets off the bank's books, right? Because a lot of the excess reserves are passed through to... to, uh, uh, Time, uh, you know, transactions accounts at the commercial banks, and and those are, um, you know, commercial banks through regulation have you know capital to asset ratios, and so it's going to help them free up some of that. I don't think that's constrained lending anyway. I know there's been a lot of talk about it, but if it has, it's I think it's trivial. And uh, and if you look since the Fed started raising rates, credit expansion has gone up, right? Growth of all these credit aggregates, you know, CNI loans and bank credit, real oh, estate loans. Oh, I've, You've seen the charts. I've de- I've definitely noticed. Yeah. I've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. So so raising rates has not caused a restriction in, you know, the growth of real estate loans or anything else. I, it's gone up. I, I, I'd describe it as ambiguous at the moment, but certainly hasn't gone down, which is curious, right? So I just want to make one point before I'm on I'm on way too many uh, 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 hate lists. Um, so I uh, uh, can't see a problem with MMT. I can't see a logical uh, error in the logic of MMT. But what most intrigues me is the opportunity to stress test it against events in real time. 
so before people write to me saying you're scum and you believe in MMT and creationism or whatever, <laughs> then I just want to make the point that what intrigues me most isn't that I know for sure. I don't have any biblical revelation that MMT is correct. I think it looks about right to me. I've been wrong. However, right here, right now, we have two different conclusions from the conventional analysis and the MMT analysis. Let's check. Let's well, see what well, happens. Wait a minute. You have two conclusions from conventional analysis today versus conventional analysis a year ago. <laughs> Fair enough. You are definitely, I can tell you you're an economist because you're such a pedant. Yeah. So it's a classic economist yeah. thing. But yes, I, I, absolutely. I, I, you, know, right. I, you know, you can call it MMT if you want, but I, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't no, call I, it. No, I take, I take your point. I take your point. Yeah. You know, I would say that the price level being a function of prices paid by government that was introduced to the academic world by MMT and when I did that back in 1996. Not that they hadn't known it 200 years before that, but it was different people. <laughs> so I've re reached the point where I have to say uh, that we should call it quits because my my kids are getting off the school bus. And uh, if I don't pick them up, I don't know who will. Good. So um, it's uh, thank you so much for joining me on this. I'm, I'm hoping we can do it again sometime. Good. Because there's stuff I wanted to talk to you about. And I, I've obviously not grasped certain things correctly. Um, so I'd like to kind of follow up on that. Maybe I should just do, do the reading like like a proper person would, right? Um, but that was great and really useful. And I hope other people found it useful too. Okay. Um, uh, let's see how this all works out with these yields and curves and everything. But if it start, seems to me if we start to rally, if if we get a rally in bond markets and they stop raising rates for whatever reason, doesn't matter what catalyzes it, it will just uh, be incredibly reflexive. Rates will just come down super quick. Yeah, well, it works in both directions. When they cut rates, they slow things down and they help bring inflation down. So it's pro-cyclical, so to speak. Yeah. And, and, and that's what happened with Bernanke bringing down rates where we said, I said the same thing. This is not going to cause inflation and it's going to cause deflation. And they, the more it brings them down, the more it'll happen. And they just fall all the way to zero. So it's the same thing, both directions. That's fantastic. We should uh, and we should actually give them your website because I, I've so uh, center of the universe from memory. Yeah, MoslerEconomics.com. and then uh, Twitter it's at wb Mosler. It's been a great pleasure, Mister Mosler. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and as always, head over to RealVision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com